Good morning, Redeemer. Merry Christmas. Hope everyone got exactly what they wanted. (laughs) I did. Well, welcome, those of you. uh, There's a lot of guests. Welcome to you as well. Merry Christmas. Welcome to town. Uh, We are going, uh, doing a series on Mark. Today we are in Mark chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses... Uh, 28 through 34. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your body. I thank you for the church, for calling us out of the world and making us your own. I pray, Lord God, as we open your word this morning, as we consider uh, who Christ is and what he did and what he taught, I pray, Lord, that we would reflect, that we would consider our own lives, that we would draw nearer to you and come to know your son better than we did yesterday and that we would go from here uh, and live live out our faith uh, in imitation of him that we would not just act like him but that we would think like him and that we would love like him i praise you and i thank you in the name of jesus and amen Amen. so the passage before us today i'm going to actually read it for us before i get started on it it follows Uh, After the question from the Sadducees about the resurrection from last week, uh, what we're in is is in the midst of an ongoing debate between Jesus and the um, leaders of the Jewish temple who have come to question him and and, and exactly, well, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to lure him uh, into a situation in which they can put him to death. Uh, We learned earlier in chapter 11 that is exactly what they're hoping to do. They're plotting against him. And so this this dialogue that they're having with him uh, is a series of traps. And and following this trap they try to get him with the resurrection comes a very interesting turn, actually. I'm going to read it for us. It's beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Which is interesting because that is not a commandment. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There was no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there was no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all, your underst- all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, No one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't either. A crucial clue in comprehending this passage today is found in verse 34. The inquiring scribe is not far from the kingdom of heaven. This was the judgment of the rich young ruler back in chapter 10. In that story, Jesus dealt with one who excelled in earthly wealth. Here, the scribe excels in human knowledge of the word of God. The question for both the rich young ruler and the scribe is, what is lacking? What is missing? In regard to the rich young ruler, the question is explicit. Here it is implicit. 
We have to use the principles of logic to draw out what Christ is really asking. What, what is Christ really saying to this young man? It takes digging. It takes contemplation. In both stories, what is presented is a Christ who addresses a group of believers whose besetting sin is self. A self covered with an external fig leaf faith. The line of inquiry differs from the Sadducee from last week in that it does not involve any kind of controversy. There's no controversy here. These are two men who love the word of God sitting down and agreeing with one another. So what's the problem? What's the problem? If you agree with the word of God and you sit down with Jesus and the two of you say, well, let's compare texts. What is it really about? And you compare texts and you've both come to the same conclusion. How is it that Jesus at the end says, well, you're close? Right? When you first read it, you think, oh, finally, finally, Jesus found somebody who understands the word of God like he does. And yet, something's missing. Indeed, the friendly attitude of the scribe, which is different from all the other exchanges between Jesus and the other teachers of the law, it stands out here for its positivity. <laughs> this is the time when Jesus is actually positive. He's not usually very positive. That in itself, I think, is quite funny. Usually, he's quite negative about everyone he talks to. But this time, he's positive when it comes to religious leaders. The first question of Jesus about authority uh, earlier in the chapter was either from a Pharisee or a Herodian. The second question about the resurrection was from a Sadducee. Now, all three questioners, the of, of all three, the scribe was the most honest and alone, alone receives approval. It appears from verse 28 that the scribe was already conscious of the theological strength of Jesus, his, his reply. He approves of what he said to the Sadducee. He's listening to the debate, and he says, yeah, Jesus, that's good. That's good stuff right there. Hmm. Hmm. And I'm, not, I'm curious if he thinks at that moment that he's finally found someone that understands the law as well as he does. Because what the scribe says, right, he says, yeah, you know what's more important than the sacrificial system is loving people and loving God. So there's probably some relief for this poor scribe. Because he's probably experienced a lot of what Jesus is experiencing. It's going around and wondering why is everybody so fixated on the wrong thing? Now, so then why would Jesus open his hand and give this young man so much and then at the same time say, yeah, well, you're still lacking. You're close. That would frustrate this guy, wouldn't it? You finally think you found the one who gets you. It turns out he doesn't get you. Last week, Jesus drew out of Moses' writing in Exodus 3 an important truth about God, which God embedded within the words of Moses. But even Moses didn't comprehend. We covered this last week. Jesus goes to a section of the scriptures that doesn't teach explicitly anything about the resurrection, and he draws out of it a lesson about the resurrection. Words that God had put into Moses' mouth to write down that Moses himself hadn't yet comprehended. Jesus is showing his ability as a biblical scholar and a theologian. I like this section a lot for this reason. Is that a lot of people think that Jesus is just this simple, anti-intellectual, right? He's very basic. He doesn't get into creeds. He doesn't get into confessions. He doesn't get into statements of faith. He has a very simple faith. But what we find him doing here is exegetical work that is actually very dangerous. To go into scripture and pull something out that isn't, 
explicitly there, and to hold it up as truth is a very dangerous thing to do. And only the really good theologians can do it. Now what he's, he's going to do is he's going to summarize the entire Old Testament law in a couple of sentences. Now, does anybody in here want to try that? Well, we can try it now because Jesus did it for us, and so we know what we're supposed to say. But how about you summarize Romans for me? What's the book of Romans about? It's uh, a good question. <laughs> right? Okay, we'll try something easier. What's Philemon about? Something about a slave, I think. Slavery is bad. Jesus is a very good theologian. He's a very good academic. He's a very good scholar. And he is sitting here amongst the best scholars of his day, and he is, well, for the most part, showing them to be fools. Amen. But now what he's actually, is he's found one that is pretty close. And he doesn't smack this guy down. He actually gives this guy, right, he gives him some breadcrumbs. He says, you're close. And do you think that guy who's answered the way that he's answered is going to go away and not contemplate what Jesus might mean by that? He, right? To a tender-hearted man, you give a tender-hearted answer. Think of all <laughs> the other people he calls broods of vipers, sacks of snakes. He goes around and he starts turning their tables over and whipping them. This guy says, hey, you're pretty close. And then he, this, I like this too, he doesn't explain anything further. He walks away. <laughs> and this is a very difficult way of discipling people to figure out, right? When do you sit down and and just explain things and explain things and explain things, and when do you give a little nugget and walk away? It's very dangerous. Jesus is a dangerous man, and he's playing with live ammunition here. Now, theologian Bavink states this. Bavink is a Dutch theologian. Uh, He's worth reading if you find the work in translation. I would not learn Dutch to read it. It's, It's good, but it's not that good. In the case of Jesus and the apostles, this exegesis of the Old Testament assumes the understanding that a word or sentence can have a much deeper meaning and a much farther reaching thrust than the original author suspected or put into it. We recognize in the way that Jesus and the way that the apostles approach scripture is very different than our own. Remember, this is the example from last week. How does Paul go to Deuteronomy, finds this verse about not muzzling the ox when you're treading out the grain, and apply that somehow to paying pastors? Does anybody else feel this way when you're reading the, the New Testament? You come across something an apostle says about the Old Testament, and you think, I've read that. And you go back and you look at it and you think, what? Huh? Right? Somebody here, either you or me, doesn't understand what this Old Testament book is about. Exactly. If Jesus were there, that's what he would say. Exactly. The Bible is a complex book. Some of what it teaches is expressly set down. Some things are drawn out by what theologians call good and necessary consequence. That is a phrase that we should all learn. It's a phrase we should learn to ask one another. You hear somebody say, well, I think the Bible teaches... You could say, and be like, well, is that good? Is that necessary? Is that good, what you're saying? Is that necessary? If we simply ask one another these two questions... I think it would save us, right, from a lot of bad practical theology. Now, how many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, I got a word from the Lord, or I thought of this verse, and I think this is what it means. I think I should do this. Boom, let's ask these two questions. Is that, is that good? Is that necessary? 
The third question we're going to learn from the scribe today, because the scribe does what he's supposed to do as a good theologian, and he takes what Jesus says, and he compares it to another portion of Scripture. Right? This is what, this is Theology 101. This is all it is. You read a passage, you say, is this good? Is this necessary for me to, right? For, I, I think this is what it means. You ask, is it good? Is it necessary? And then you've got to go find some other place in Scripture where it says it. Because if you don't, then you should stop. And you should assume that it's not good and it's not necessary. Right? I, I'm, this is what Luther was asked all the time. How is it that you, of all people, understand this when everybody else is wrong? Now, if you get asked that question, you're in good company. Right? But if everybody asks you that question, that's not good. Right? You're in the tall grass. Now, what, all, what this means, if, if you're going to go into Exodus 3 and you're going to pull something out that isn't explicitly there, this is theology. This is what theology is. As soon as somebody says, I believe the Song of Solomon is about this, you're doing theology because you're interpreting what it means. You're interpreting what it says. Jesus shows us that our Bible study is often too simplistic, which affects our personal understanding and nearness of God. Remember what these guys' problems are? He says to them, you don't know the scriptures, therefore you don't know the power of God. If you knew the scriptures, you would know the power of God. If you knew what the scriptures said, then you would know the God who it speaks of. This is not the task solely of scholars. Right? I said the word academic a few minutes ago, and how many of you guys thought in your minds, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with me? Right? I swing a hammer for a living. Isn't that Mike's job? Isn't that what we pay him for? Think about these things. But when your child comes to you (laughs) and says, wait, I don't understand how you you and mommy are one flesh. What does that mean? There you are and there she is and I don't get it. And as soon as you answer that question, you're doing theology. Now, how many of you parents have had your kids ask those questions? Right? This is not ivory tower stuff that I'm talking about. Your friend comes to you and he says, yeah, this is for the young men in the room, young ladies who are old enough to date. But your buddy comes to you and says, yeah, there's this girl. She's smoking hot, and she's really into religious stuff. She's very spiritual. I think I could evangelize her through dating. Right? That teenager hears that from his friend and thinks, oh, my goodness, that is a problem. And he begins to explain why this is a stupid idea. That, that young man is doing theology. This is, not, right? this is my point. This is not something that is done simply at Westminster Theological Seminary. Jesus knew the scriptures and ultimately what they were really about, which is God. Because that's what all of these questions are about. Who is God? Who am I? What does he expect of me? Therefore, what should I do? Now, what theological question doesn't involve that? Who is God? Who am I? What does he want me to do? Therefore, what should I do? That's like the only four theological questions, really, that there are. Now, is that not important, ladies, to you raising little children? Right? I've said this before. You're the ones raising little souls. Right? We think that, oh, well, you know, my husband, he's really into theology. He, he knows about those things. It's okay. Wait, well, who spends all day with the kids? Hubby? Right? He gets a little bit of time right at bedtime, and hopefully he's using that time to read them fairy tales, not give them right, his opinion on superlapsarianism. Right? Who's with those little ones all day long, training them to, to, to grow up and go into the world and believe and know who Jesus Christ is? 
Jesus is in this story doing much more than we realize. He is expanding on this, on, on this idea that knowing the scriptures is knowing God and that theology is something that is, is important to every person. Now, why? Why am I saying this? Let, let's get into it now and see what Jesus is doing. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? He's asking him because Jesus had answered him well. The Sadducee, Jesus answered well, and now the scribe is like, okay, I approve of this guy. I want to hear more of what he says, and so I'm going to ask him a, a question, but it's not a trap. I really want to know. A distinction here is made here between lighter and weightier matters of the law, smaller and greater commandments. This is an inevitable feature of Jewish piety, since in the traditional to speak, it is traditional to speak of 613 individual commands in the law. 613. That's a lot. That's a lot fewer than King County has. Don't get me started. I used to take my break in this room, the wall the size of this one behind me, and it was law books, and I thought, are those, are those federal laws? And they're like, oh, no, those are King Counties. I, hate, I didn't eat in that room anymore. That's frightening to me. But if there are 613 laws, do you think that it's possible that some of them are more important than others? Now, okay, I understand. We all fall short of the glory of God. All sins are equal. Right? No one is as holy as God. But we all understand that a child stealing a cookie is not the same as a man committing murder in a home invasion. Right? If your theology makes those two things equal, we all understand that those things aren't equal. And yet we come to the word of God and we're confused when Jesus talks about weightier matters of the law, which he does do. In Matthew twenty-three twenty-three, Jesus says this very interesting thing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Right? You're, ju- you're weighing spices, but you can't even weigh the law to tell what's more important. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And most of us New Testament folks who love grace hear those three things and say, I don't think Leviticus has anything to do with justice and mercy and faithfulness. Right? He's not... He's not talking about something separate from the law. He's talking about the weightier matters of the law. And the weightier matters of the law sound pretty New Testament to me. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Do you want to know how to be a just person? Read Leviticus. Do you want to know how to be a merciful person? Read Leviticus. Is anyone skin crawling yet, right? We're all thinking, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Either we don't understand it or he doesn't understand it. (laughs) Ooh, not as funny the second time. I struggle with this verse so much. The weightier matters of the law, it's there in the law. You go and you look and this is justice. This is mercy. This is an important consideration. What are the weightier matters of the law and what are the heavier laws? What are they? How are we to know? Right? If you, right? We can put spice on a weight, on a measuring thing, and we can say, okay, this is 10% of it, and this is, this is how much I should give. But then, okay, I want right, you to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, cool. Do you have a scale? Can I put, how do I weigh that out? 
that's much more difficult. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answers him in verses 29 through 31. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. No other commandment greater than these. The problem is, the thing that he's recited here isn't actually found as it is in the scriptures. These are several different verses from Deuteronomy and Leviticus that he's put together. So I understand that what he's working with are Bible verses. But what this is, is an extra-biblical statement. This statement that he has made in full, at the time that he made it, I understand we can find it in scripture now, but at the time that he made it, it isn't found in scripture. He's summarizing... Right? The Torah were five books. He's summarizing five books of the Old Testament in a couple of sentences. And he's doing it by taking the Bible and cutting little pieces out and gluing them in a little notebook, saying this is actually what it's about. Now, I thought, right, I thought Jesus was beyond all that. I thought he was beyond systematic theology. I thought he was beyond creedal formulations. But here he is reciting something that good Jews recited twice a day. Now, why do you think they recited these portions of Scripture twice a day? Why do you think they did it? Well, <laughs> we've found some of them do it because that's what you're supposed to do. Why do you think Jesus did it? What do you think the benefit is to memorizing something and repeating it twice a day when it's a summation of God's commandments to you? Why does it begin with the, who God is? These are very important questions. You know, the Ten Commandments, how many, many of you may have the Ten Commandments in your house? It says, you know, number one goes down through ten. But do you know there's a preamble to the Ten Commandments? And the preamble to the Ten Commandments is God saying, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. It starts with who he is and gets down to what he thinks you should do. That's something that's very important. Because too many of us make it just about the Ten Commandments. And we forget that preamble part, the part that makes the rest of it make sense. Wait, um, defeating Egyptian gods and, and Egyptian armies are impossible for me. Kind of impossible like honoring my mother and father. But thank God I have a God who fights for me. If you don't remember who God is, you're not going to keep his commandments. And so just plastering the Ten Commandments in your house or on a courthouse doesn't do anything for anybody. It really doesn't. Unless you're willing to talk about who the God is who made the list. Now, according to a pocket, the pocket dictionary of liturgy and worship, yes, such a thing exists. And I love it because it saves me from having to have five-page definitions of words. It, it defines a word called creed. What is a creed? Because that's what Jesus has done. Someone has asked Jesus his opinion, and he states what he believes. Okay, creed comes from the Latin word credo, I believe, a statement or confession of belief. Gathered Christians recite a creed or affirm their common faith, originally affirmed in their baptisms. The recitation of a creed was part of the baptismal process in earlier times, and has been part of the liturgy of the church 
down to the present time. In this church, we used to say the Apostles or Nicene Creed every week. And we did it because we wanted to make, we're making a, a statement out loud that everyone in the room believes these things. The Shema, which is what Jesus partially quotes here, is from Deuteronomy in chapter 6. It, it begins in verse 4. The Shema is something that Jews used to memorize and recite. So a creedal statement, I believe, and you follow it with lists of doctrines, goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Because many modern Christians think, oh, that's something that, right, they hear the word catechism, and they think, oh, that's those Roman Catholics. I don't want nothing to do with that. Right, or even the word creed sounds like what? Does that sound like an American Baptist in the Midwest? Right, they don't really have creeds, do they? It sounds very counterintuitive to the modern faith that we hold to. But here we open the scriptures and Jesus is repeating a what? He's reciting a what? A creed. What does that tell you about what they call creedalism? Is Jesus opposed to creedalism? He's repeating the creeds of his day. The basis of creeds is, is found in the Bible itself. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28. Do not move the an- ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Now, this is important if you want to do land law, right? I can't sneak over to your house and give more room for my sheep by taking your stone that marks your land and moving it over on your side 20 feet. I'm not supposed to do that. But this verse has been quoted, right, by the magisterial reformers, theologians, all through the Christian period, in, right, the Jewish theologians, as an understanding that we're not also supposed to move our creeds. They're fixtures, denoting this land... From what land out there? Unbelief. This is belief, the land of belief. That over there is the land of unbelief. Don't move this. Deuteronomy 19.14. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. If you want to possess the land of your fathers, it's about more than land. It's about doctrinal statements. Creeds are ancient boundary markers, and creeds are systematic theology. They're thematic summaries of the Bible. Theology is unavoidable, as I said before. Systematic theology happens whenever you seek to apply scripture by asking what the whole Bible teaches about any specific subject. If somebody says, what is a Messiah, and you, go to, right, you start in the Old Testament, you work your way to the New Testament, summarizing everything that the Bible has to say about what a Messiah is, you've done theology. Now, if that's the definition of theology, does that make theology more important than you thought it was yesterday? When someone comes to my wife and they say, you know, can you explain to me exactly how I ought to be disciplining my child? I need some advice. I'm really struggling. And she sits down and she explains from the Old Testament to the New Testament what godly discipline looks like. Not just from parent to child, but from God to child. That's, like, that's systematic theology, ladies. And you do it while folding laundry, baking bread. Any biblical translation, sermon, Bible study, statement, that begins with the Bible says, or the Lord says, or the Bible teaches, or the Lord teaches, is theology. Which means that every one of you, hopefully, is doing it every day. 
Now, what is the summary of Jesus' theology? What is it? Before we get to that, let, there's, there's a tone that Jesus has here with this young man. He, this isn't confrontational. He's not dealing with hard-hearted people who, don't know, who think they know and don't know and need to be roughly displaced from their self-reliance. Jesus is dealing with someone here. He's instructing him. He's teaching him. He's guiding him along. And this is what the word teaching in Greek means that is used all over the place in the New Testament. It's didache is the word, and it's a family of words. And now listen to this. This is, this is the idea about theology. This is what the first theological handbook that the Christians ever had was called the didache, the teaching. Because theology that is teaching is good theology. Theology that isn't, isn't. Let's look at how this word is used in the New Testament because this is our guiding principle. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Tell me if this sounds, right, like the kind of theology that you're used to thinking about. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Titus 1, 9. He must hold firm. This is speaking of elders and leaders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Second John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Right? But what is a lot of modern theology? A lot of modern theology, right? I have a, a friend who uh, teaches at Westminster Theological Seminary, and there's a phrase that they use out there in those circles, and it's this, publish or die. Now, if publish or die is the academic approach, the theology, what kind of theology are you going to get? Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought, too. What, what is devoted to the apostles' teaching. Warning those people who are going astray. Right? Does this sound pastoral to you? These verses I read. Yes, that's good theology. When you're guiding your child in the way they ought to go, that's theology and that's pastoral and that is good. Right? If I just want... <laughs> the arguments that these people get in these days that I have to on some level keep track of simply so that I know the difference between people who are off their rockers and people who aren't. But now they're talking about the ancient covenant between God, Father, and Son that doesn't really say much about it in the Bible, but we're arguing about the nature of that and exactly who supersedes who in the Trinitarian life. Now, how many of you guys are going to read a book about that and go out and love your wives better? Right? I'm as anti-intellectual and a fundamentalist when it comes to the right kinds of things as anybody. Now, what we do is we hear what I just said and what many of us do, take all of it, and drop kick it across the street because I don't want nothing to do with books. I don't want anything to do with anything scholarly or academic because it's antithetical to heart religion. Right? The, the, this religion is religion of the heart. It's about how you feel. It's about what you're experiencing. Now, isn't that just as bad? They think it's all about the head. You, you can't reject that by saying it has nothing to do with the head, only the heart. Well, and now we have these, well, it's not a new thing, but the social gospel, right? It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter how you feel. Love is a verb, okay? And there are people using 
black construction paper in elementary schools in the inner city, and it's racist, and we have to stop it. This is a thing. This is a real thing. I'm not kidding. Right? I just watched a lecture by a nut job from South Seattle who thinks mathematics is racist. We've been teaching racism for decades and centuries because of the way that we teach math. Right? Because if you're a little inner city kid, do you really want to hear about the, what the ancient Greeks thought about how to do equations? Why are you, right? We're still listening to the white masters, apparently, or some such nonsense. So people like that think the gospel is all about what you do with your hands. So you got the people who think it's all head, you got the people who think it's all heart, and you got the people who think it's all hands. Which one are you? You're going to be one of them, maybe a combination of two. Maybe none. <laughs> That's its own problem. But what does Jesus say? What is his answer? Right? You will love the Lord your God with all your what? Your, heart, your mind and your heart and your strength, your hands. You'll love him with all three. And you'll love your neighbor with all three. What you think about your neighbor. How you feel about your neighbor. What you do or don't do for your neighbor. Right? That's his summation of the law. I have totally lost my place. Okay, here we go. I found it. This heart and hand and mind religion that Jesus is teaching is exactly what Moses was talking about when he originally wrote Deuteronomy. The verb aheb, my Hebrew isn't as good as it could be, is the Old Testament's all-purpose word for affection, liking, friendliness, passion, ordure, infatuation, enthusiasm, devotion, caring, and dedication. Thanks to C.S. Lewis, we know the Greek have four words that we use for love. Right? The love between a man and a woman, between friends, the affectionate kind between like a man and his dog, and the kind uh, between man and God. But in the Old Testament, they just had one word that summed it all up. And that's the word that Moses uses. Now, now let's see how sometimes this word is used in the Old Testament. Lovers are personal friends. They are sexual partners. They are religious devotees. The scriptures state that Isaac loves three things. Rebecca, Esau, his enemy, and stew. Right? Amen to that. Especially wild game stew. But this is another... Isaac loves Rebecca and Esau and stew. That, that is... That, this is how that word is used. That's, that's how we use it, right? In our house, we try to be very careful. You can't love Star Wars. You can't say that because that dilutes the word, right? And so I started to teach them. Uh, I want to teach them the Greek words. So when they talk about Star Wars, they use the right kind of love because I don't want them loving Mama and loving Star Wars the same way. They probably do. <laughs> but I want, I want them to begin to differentiate between these things. The Psalms in the Old Testament use this word in Hebrew, speaking of loving violence, faithfulness, the temple, the Lord's deliverance, cursing, and words that consume. <laughs> David loves, right? And David's heart is just like God's. And these are the things that David loves. 
The broad and narrow context suggests that Deuteronomy's love expresses itself at least as much in doing what the Torah says as in how you feel about it. The commission to love is set in the context of exhortation to keep the Lord's instructions and laws and commands, right? If you love him, then you will love what he says, and you will do what he says because you love him and because you love what he says. And this is why, this is why the Jewish theologians in Jesus' day say, with, with, they put these categories in there, with all your mind and with all your soul, heart, and with all your strength, hands. Because they understand how big that word is that they're summarizing. And so they're expanding upon it. This is what they want. We, they don't want you to love a little bit. They don't want you to just love with a, the kind of affection a man has for a dog. Because a lot of us, when we say we love our neighbor, that's really what we're talking about. Our neighbor is like our puppy. Right? What they want is all of it. They want all of it. When you say you love something, you ought to love it with your mind, you ought to love it with your heart, and you ought to love it with your hands. Now, how many of us really love anything that much? Really? Right? We're, we're, we kind of gravitate towards one. Well, I, I like to think nice thoughts about people. I like to feel good feelings about people. I like to do nice, right? I'm going to pay it forward. And we, and we kind of gravitate towards these categories because what we don't want is to give away ourselves. That's the very thing that Jesus said that we ought to do, though. It's about your whole self, all of you. Not some of you, all of you. St. Augustine summarized, <laughs> he summarized Jesus' teaching in this regard, in this way. This is what he said, and this has been quoted to me so many times by unbelievers, but this is a good one. I don't want them to steal it from us and wreck it. This is what Augustine said. Love and do as you like. Uh, that's not what he said, though. That's what I hear all the time from him. It says, love God and do what you like. Because if you love God, if you love God with all your mind and all your heart and with your hands, that will right? you're free to do whatever you want because that love will direct you in the right direction. Right? When unbelievers say this, I, the immediate question is, okay, well, let's talk about two words. Let's talk about the fact that you left God out of this and what do you think love means? But this is, right, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And what he wants is for us to understand the love of God towards us and respond with a kind of love that is freedom. I can go where I want and do what I want and say what I want and think what I want because God's, the love that I have for him is the guiding principle in my mind, in my heart, and in my hands. That is a free person. That's Paul. Right? That man goes, he's all things to all people. You can do whatever you want from him. Nothing's going to separate him from the love of God. Not stones, not starvation, not shipwreck. Now, is that the kind of love you have for God? Right? What? Right? Your car breaks down right after church. Where did all that love go? Peter gets washed up on a shore, and he's like, man, God is good. <laughs> Look at this love. I didn't drown. Uh, that, see, that's me talking. That's not what Paul said. He just said he's happy. Right? He sees the love of God in all things because Paul understands, he, right, this is what I was talking about at the end of last week. Paul understands he's the worst of sinners and so anything that God does for him is better than what he deserves. Right? We like to think that the lowest point that Jesus descended was a manger. But it's not the lowest point. The lowest point that he descended is you and me. And, and if we know that, 
That fills us with love. That fills our, to know that fills our minds with love. To feel that love fills our hearts with love. And then what it's supposed to do is fill our hands with love. Mark chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. And the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there was no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all your understanding and the, and the will of the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You are right, man. Look at this guy. Hey, everybody, look at this guy. He nailed it. Loving God with your whole self and loving your neighbor as yourself is more important than the temple and what's sacrificed in it. Now, I I see this, and I'm like, man, how is this guy not a disciple? What is Peter doing in the bunch when this guy is out there, right? Seems like Jesus missed an opportunity. But... Here this man is, judging Jesus, listening to the words of Jesus, judging them, testing him. And all the while, what is actually going on? The word of God is sitting there judging him. (laughs) Oh, that's different. Right? You said all that stuff about theology where I get to accumulate a bunch of information and use it to, to apply it to all these other situations as a judge. Because when we go to the scriptures, that's what we're doing, right? I've got to tell my brother-in-law how he is living a life that is going to go straight to hell. Let me find some verses. It's the loving thing to do, right? Jesus was never nice to people. He just told them the hard truth. Right? And there the guy is. How many times is this? <laughs> Right? How many times have you been sitting there listening to a sermon and you think, man, if I am sending this sermon to so-and-so. Mike, is there a link? No. Right? I know some people who need to hear that. And all the while, who, you're sitting there judging the word of God right, and your neighbor <laughs> instead of letting the word of God judge you. That's a very different religious practice. That's a very different spiritual exercise. When is the last time you sat, not in judgment of the word of God, but under its judgment? This is how I'm going to conclude. Let's find out if you love Jesus. Let's find out. It's a little test. Who are your theological fathers? What are their boundaries? Do you, do you know what the creedal statement of this church is, those of you who go here? Do you know what portions of scripture we thought important enough to summarize in a statement? Why those? Why that one? Or are you thinking, I never heard of that, I don't know what that's talking about, I don't know. Okay, well, who were your spiritual fathers? Can you recite the Apostles' Creed? The Nicene Creed? Don't you love Jesus? Okay, that, that's a, I'm sorry. We'll leave that for a second. All right. How about this? We'll, go, we'll do this. Okay, so why are there ten genealogies in the book of Genesis? Can you summarize the book of Romans or Malachi? 
Why is Philemon in the Bible? Who really wrote Hebrews? Please don't Google that. If all of the Old Testament is about Jesus, how does the Song of Solomon fit into that? Okay, now answer that question without being a weirdo. Okay? <laughs> okay, and avoid Samuel Rutherford on the issue. Now, why can't you answer these questions? Don't you love Jesus? See, what happens is that we ask critical questions. We come in here and we say, you know, it's not about what you know, it's about how you feel. It's about what, your heart. It's about where your heart's at. Right? And for weeks, I've been smacking fig leaf Christianity around. This thing where it knows all the right things to say and all the right things to do, and that's wicked and that's evil, and now I'm asking you questions like this. Now, why? Because so many of us hear this way that we've been talking about fig leaf Christianity, and we want none of it. It's not about head knowledge at all. I haven't opened my Bible in weeks. I have no idea what it says, so I'm safe. Right? I don't want to be one of those people who just makes it about naming rivers in the Old Testament. Now, I, it was really interesting. When I was going through my exam, people would ask me questions about what I had to know. And, and it was really telling when I was like, oh, well, you know, somebody's going to ask me to name the 12 apostles. Right? And the eye rolls that I got for quite, like, people like, oh, jeez, come on. Okay, well, you know, the guy who knows <laughs> those, that kind of information, Jesus if, if, you, if you know the scriptures, that doesn't mean you're not close to the kingdom of heaven. It means you're pretty close to the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Now, what do you call the person who, who doesn't know those things, but will sit in judgment of such a person, right? Do they know Jesus better? Now, is, Je- is loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, really about memorizing the 12 apostles? Please, no. Or the 12 disciples? I can't even get the word right. I'm failing the test right now. Right? It's not a head religion. It's not a heart religion, and it's not a hand religion. It's all three together. What do you know? Why don't you know it? How do you feel? Why do you feel that way? How are you expressing that love towards God and neighbor? Let's talk about your hand. What have you done lately for somebody else? Right? And, and this, this is where we all ought to come running, running to the empty tomb and say, Jesus, please, you knew it all. You felt all the right things. You did all the right things. And I'm looking around now in my life. I'm taking the time to look around, and it's not good. I need to get my head right. I need to get my heart right. And I need to get my hands right. Now, that person is going to go out and do great things for the kingdom of God, right? That person who comes to him and says, listen, I know that you descended pretty far. But you descended upon me. And it doesn't get lower than that. Use me. Take me. All of me, my head, my heart, and my hands, and use me to do your will. That's the person, right? This is the person who's closing the loop, because see what that person has done? Not, the, the scribe is sitting there, and he, he doesn't get that he hasn't closed the loop, because God is sitting right in front of him, and even though he knows the word of God, he doesn't know the word of God. He doesn't get that the person right in front of me is the person that the scriptures are talking about. Now, if you hear all that I'm saying, and you've done what I said, and you go running to Jesus to to plea with him, then you do get it. Right? If the, the the answer isn't going online to Amazon and buying as many systematic theology books as you can. 
right? It's not like, well, we're going to open a soup kitchen in our living room now. We could probably do that. But it's not just running, running, running out and just like, whoop, oh, well, I better start doing stuff. Because the point of the sermon is that you, you, it's not about the things. It's about the person behind the things. Right? It's not just about knowing the scriptures. It's about knowing the one who the scriptures speak of. It's not just right, knowing the scriptures. It's not just going through the motions. It's about having this heart that yearns after God. It's not just about looking good and checking boxes. It's about using your resources, being a good steward of them, to love your neighbor as you would yourself. Because why? Because you understand behind all of those things is a person. Right? When you give a cup of water to someone who needs it, who are you giving it to? Jesus says, him. When you study the scriptures, they speak of him. The closer we get to these things, the closer we get to him if we're going about it in the humble and upright, upright way that we are supposed to. And so if you need your head right, or you need your heart right, or you need your hands right, hands right maybe all three of them, go to him. Go to him in every avenue that he's given you, which is a lot. Right? He's in the word of God. He's there in prayer. He's there in song. Draw near to him through those things. C.S. Lewis said, besides the, the elements of the sacrament, the holiest thing presented to your senses is your neighbor. Because loving them, like God, is the great, second greatest commandment. Right? We want it to be about the th- just one thing, but do you see how holistic all of this that I'm describing is and how much it actually requires of us? And it, start, it starts with this simple thing. Sit down. Open the word of God and say, you know, judge me. Show me. Draw near to me. That I might draw near to you. Seek him. Seek him. Get your, your head right about him. Your heart right about how you feel about him. And then everything else will come together. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, for your son who came into this world, who did not remain far from us. Lord God, he knew the word of God. He was the word of God. And that we pray, Lord, as we draw near to the word of God, that we draw near to you. That as we draw together in in, in fellowship, that it wouldn't be about mere externals, but that we would draw near to you. And as we did that, that we would draw nearer to one another, that we would draw nearer to our fellow man. I pray, Lord God, that we would have an immense amount of humility and grief over our sin and our failures, and that we would go running to Christ. That we would not sit in judgment of others or the Word of God, but that we would let the Word of God sit in judgment of us. That we would not forget that all of these things, that what's behind them is a person, and that person is your son, and he loves us, and he is here with us, and I pray, Lord God, that we would know that, and that we would live Therefore, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike.